Father, we, we need you. We, we desperately need you. And I want to praise you that we have you, that you've given yourself to all who call on the name of Jesus Christ. And so we're calling on you this morning. Would you pour out your spirit upon us? Would you give us understanding of your word? As, as we study the Bible, Lord, we know we can't understand this. We can't know how to apply it unless you give us grace to do that. So Father, would you do that in us? And Lord, not only for us in this room, Lord, I pray for all of those gospel teaching churches in this community, particularly the house at Palm Bay, uh, as you lead them under the guidance of Ken Delgado, their, their lead pastor, Father, would you give them grace today to experience your presence and your power I ask that they would be fixed on Jesus. I pray they would be happy in Christ. I pray they'd be filled with the joy of the Lord and the peace that only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray they would go out like we will on mission with Jesus to make the gospel known. And and Father, I pray that in that regard, we would look at our community through a gospel lens. Father, help us to engage with our neighbors and coworkers in a very tumultuous time, in a very polarizing time in our community would you help us to do that well, to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit and in a way that represents the fullness of who Jesus is? God, I pray that you would stop the mouths of hateful people. I pray that you would, you would curb those individuals who in misplaced anger are taking out their frustrations on their neighbors and their fellow citizens. God, I pray that you would do a work in us, that we would be the most grace-filled, merciful joyous people in this community and that we would do those things grace mercy peace father for the sake of the gospel lord may we stand for truth even when it's unpopular lord would you give us grace to stand for truth and to have the discernment to know what that looks like in this regard father we give this to your care we, we pray for our school board members lord we ask that you would give them grace uh, father i know there are at least a couple believers on that board i pray you'd give them boldness and Help them to have the power and understanding to know how to proceed, how to to make good, godly choices for the well-being of all of the students, all of the students and their families in this community. Father, we need you, and we pray that you would give us grace as you pour out your spirit upon us today. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, amen, amen. Turn your Bibles to Revelation, Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Next week, by God's grace, uh, will be our last week in the book of Revelation. Uh, We're almost there. That's another way of saying we're almost there. And I want to say something um, that has been in my heart this week as I've been preparing for this morning's message. I am so grateful for the work of Jesus Christ in you as a church, in us as a church family. As I was thinking through what we've been doing over the last six months, studying a book of the Bible that many people avoid like the plague, uh, encountering really hard and difficult things. I know some of it's been hard for you. I know all of it has been hard for me to do well. I just wanna praise God. There are many churches or or Christian communities or so-called Christian communities that would not endure a six-month study of the book of Revelation that includes every single word to be read aloud in our gatherings uh, and, and for the pastor to not answer most of your questions. 
Uh, I know that I haven't brought out any charts or timelines or sequences. I haven't identified the Antichrist for you or told you whether the false prophet comes from Russia, which he does. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I haven't shared any of those things with you because we've looked at the big main ideas. And I just want to praise God that God is creating in us a heart. You, you keep showing up every week. Every Sunday morning I wake up and I wonder, will they be back at all? And they do. They come back. You're here this morning. Next week we're going to wrap this up. And by God's grace, I pray that we will have a better understanding of what most matters about what the Bible says concerning the end of the world as we know it in the return of Jesus Christ. And so this morning we're going to continue and we're going to look uh, primarily at chapter 20, but I'm going to pick up reading in chapter 19 because I failed to read that last week even though I referenced the truth that it contains, but it's a really good segue into Revelation 20. So we'll start in Revelation 19 and verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. This is none other than Jesus Christ. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Stop right there, just really quickly. With all of the images that we're given of Jesus Christ and with all of the references that we get in our culture of Jesus Christ, I find it interesting. We almost never have anyone from our culture describe Jesus as he's found here, right? We get these descriptions of Jesus and make us think that he's just a soft-spoken, gentle, meek individual who barely enters the room and gathers anyone's attention. And, And here we have a picture of Jesus for who he is is and for how we will see him when he comes back. He is a conquering, victorious, glorious king, and he is coming with all the armies of heaven, and every eye will see him, even those who killed him. It is going to be incredible, right? It's going to be incredible. I'm not even there yet. You can get excited though. Verse 17, let's keep going. This picture, this is Jesus coming back. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, With a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slaves, small and great. Verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies. Remember, that's the enemy of God and all those that he'd gathered to himself. All the armies of the gathered together to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who's in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Verse 1 of chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit with a great chain. And he seized the dragon, 
that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw the thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But the fire came down from heaven and consumed them and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Let's stop right there, okay? Here we are at the most widely disputed section of the book of Revelation. Uh, This is the millennium. Uh, Sometimes it's referred to as the millennial reign of Christ. And there are three main interpretations for what the millennium actually is or what it's describing. What are these thousand years that we just read about being described uh, as Christ reigning with his people on this earth? There are three major viewpoints and I'm just going to cover them really quickly so you have just a reader's digest understanding and then we're going to move into the three main truths that I want you to see from this text. So the three main views of the millennium are amillennialism, premillennialism, and post-millennialism. I'll start with pre-millennialism. Pre-millennial, before the thousand years. That's a group of people who interpret this to be a time on earth when Jesus returns, after he returns, setting up a kingdom on this earth where all of the saints from all time will come back and join him to reign on this earth. There will still be mortal men and women who survived the, the, the time of the end that we've described or seen described in Revelation. Those mortal men and women will enter into that kingdom on this earth where Jesus will reign with his people on the earth and what we'll experience even though those men and women are fallen individuals who need to confess Jesus as their savior they'll experience Jesus reigning on this earth we we read in 19 that he will rule them with a rod of iron they'll get to see what it's like on earth for Jesus to be the government that sounds appealing right for Jesus to be the leader of this earth premillennialism then believes that after a thousand year time of reigning on the earth, Satan will be unbound. At the beginning, it shows him bound and and set aside and he's not able to deceive the nations or disrupt the people of the earth. But then at the end of that thousand years, under the sovereign hand of God, he will be let loose again. And once again, men and women who are mortal on this earth will choose to follow after the enemy of God rather than serve Jesus, though they would see Jesus face to face. That 
will culminate in the last battle that Jesus has finally and fully putting the enemy of God away. That's pre-millennialism. It means that we're living before the millennium and Jesus returns before the millennium. Now there's another view called post-millennialism. Don't you love how close we're together? You have a group of people say pre-before. Another said, no, it's the exact opposite, post-millennialism. Post-millennialism basically believes this, that Jesus is setting up his rule through the hearts of his people on earth and doing it already in a way that by the time he is ready to return, that Jesus will have established a kingdom on this earth, that the church will have expanded and influenced this world so much that nearly the entire world will be believers and will be redeemed. That the, the renewal of the earth will come through the church spreading over the earth in its entirety. That This view says that Jesus comes after that millennial reign of Christ through his people and brings about, it's not utopia because post-millennialists would not say it's utopia, but it's about as good as it can get because the church has expanded all that way. There are not many major theologians right now who consider that a viable option. That's why I didn't spend a whole lot of time on post-millennialism. So you have pre-millennialism and you have post-millennialism. Then you have this thing called amillennialism. So if you're not a guy who believes it's before or after, you believe it and it doesn't happen. No, I'm not kidding. Amillennialists believe in the millennium and it's similar to post-millennialism in that they would believe that the thousand years is a figurative period of time in which Jesus Christ is reigning through his people. He's living in the lives and setting up a heavenly kingdom, a spiritual kingdom right here on the earth in the hearts of his followers. Amillennialists would say that Satan is bound, not in the fullest capacity, but in the sense that he is not able to stop the the gospel spreading throughout the world. He's not completely loosed, they would say, and he's not able to do whatever he pleases. For instance, Satan cannot keep Christians from declaring the gospel of Jesus when God has opened a broad and effective door for that. And so amillennialists would believe that Satan was triumphed over at the cross and bound or restrained in a particular way. Amillennialists would believe that at the end of this age, Jesus will return Turn to this earth and he will put a final end to Satan by throwing him forever into the lake of fire. So that's as good as I could do on, on those three in a short period of time. And let me just say this. There are awesome, amazing believers in Jesus Christ and incredible Bible teachers throughout the years who have fallen into each of those three main categories. For instance, John Piper is one of my favorite Bible teachers. And so is David Platt. David Platt is the president of the Southern Baptist International mission board. John MacArthur is one of my favorite preachers as well, uh, who's alive and I believe is a gifted man today. There was a man in the 1700s. His name was Jonathan Edwards. He was used to bring about the great awakening, awakening a godly and good man of, of the book, of the word of God. Charles Spurgeon may have been the most influential and powerful preacher in the 1800s. Uh, William Carey was the father of the modern missionary movement, men who loved the gospel. Throughout church history, there's, there are men like Augustine,
Augustine and Martin Luther who have influenced pretty much every major branch of Christianity. I personally have two great friends who are preachers, uh, Jim Johnson and Andy Hale. So I just listed 10 men that I highly respect that have been used in various degrees in my life and global Christianity. And here's what you need to know. All of them fall along the spectrum of this view of the millennial reign of Jesus. Jonathan Edwards and William Carey were post-millennialists and believed the gospel and God used them to spread the word of God throughout the world. Jim Johnson and John Piper and John MacArthur and Charles Spurgeon were pre-millennialists or are pre-millennialists. Augustine, Martin Luther, David Platt, Andy Hale all lean toward amillennialists. And, and here's, here's the point. Those are all men that I agree with on almost every major doctrine and I have been blessed by and they disagree with each other concerning the view of this millennium. So let's just move on. Well, I'm sure you're wondering where I fall, right? I wonder if I should tell you where I fall on this. I am definitely not a post-millennialist. You can just go ahead and take that to bank. And here's what, I'll tell you the truth. I lean very heavily toward pre-millennial view uh, of the return of Jesus Christ. Um, uh, <laughs> and, and, and I'm leaning away from it as you clap. No, I'm kidding. Uh, here's the deal. As every week, though, my good friend Andy Hale almost convinces me to become an amillennialist. And the truth is this. I can see from this text very good biblical reasons to believe in amillennialism. And even other texts from the gospel. How However, I am not persuaded against a premillennial view of Christ's return and his setting up a thousand year kingdom on this earth. And here's the deal. If you want to study more about it and, and arrive at an even more concrete view, knock yourself out. John Kelleher would love to have a conversation with you anytime this week. Right, John? He's an amillennialist, so you may want to stay away from that. No, I'm kidding. Uh, here's the deal. It's, these are great conversations to have, but let's not miss the big point here. There are three huge truths in this text that we should not miss for the controversy that might surround how the millennial reign of Christ will actually be established on this earth. And the first big truth that I want you to see is this. Jesus is destined to reign. Jesus is destined to reign. That's what you're seeing here. Jesus Christ is reigning over all things. And he isn't reigning because he finally won a long protracted battle with his enemy. Jesus is reigning because he's the king. That's what you see here. He's reigning on the earth. You know why? Because he wants to. He is the sovereign ruler over all things. We don't make him king. He's already king. He doesn't come to get his crowns. I hope you notice that. He came with those crowns already established. Many diadems on his head. And the world is ending the way that it ends in Revelation because that's how Jesus wants it to happen. That that's the story we see here and nothing should distract us from this. This book is not just a prediction. This book is the sovereign choice of King Jesus and he is destined to reign forever, forever, now and eternally. And let me tell you why that matters. Let me tell you why that matters. It matters because this past Wednesday, I sat in a hospital room with Jim Myers and Pat, his wife, as he lay in, in, in a hospital in Cocoa preparing for a surgery that he was not necessarily expected to make it through. There was a very good possibility that Jim would pass away and his body would not be able to sustain 
the surgery that he was getting ready to undergo. And so I sat down with him in his hospital room and here's what Jim says to me. Titus, I can't explain it, but I have all the peace in the world right now. I'm not worried, I'm really good. And then he looked at me and said, I mean it. I'm really good. And here's what he said. It's entirely in Jesus's hands. And either way, I win. That's what he said. Jesus will do what he wants. And what he wants is good. And here's what he called Friday, game day. He said Friday's game day where Jesus gets to do what he wants in my life. That's what happens when you believe that Jesus is good and strong and is the sovereign king who rules right now over all things. And here's what you need to know. All of the surface level, trendy, entertainment driven teaching that's popular in our culture where pastors like me who would rather be comedians but couldn't quite cut it try to duplicate a a monologue from some late show they stayed up too late watching on Saturday evening. All that teaching, listen, it may make you feel good through lunch, but it won't do you any eternal good, and it's not going to help you when you lay on a bed that could be your deathbed. Did you know that? You need the news that God is good and he is in control and he is sovereign over your life. That's roots that grow into the the, the deepest part of the, the Godhead so that when true wind begins to blow, when you're not just inconvenienced at a stoplight, but when you're persecuted for your faith or you're facing death in a hospital room, your heart can have peace because you know something. Your Jesus is the king and he'll do what he wants because he's the king, right? Jesus is destined to reign forever. Here's the second big truth. Jesus is not only destined to reign, Satan is destined to be destroyed. That's verses seven through 10. There's coming a day when Satan and all of the forces of evil that are present in this world will be destroyed. Listen to me, friend. One day, all of the deceit all of the discouragement, all of the depression, all of the temptation, all of the wicked schemes, all of the pain that comes from them will be rolled up into a big ball and cast forever into hell where they belong. Satan is destined to be defeated. The battle you're in, the battle we're in, it's going to be over one day. It's coming to an end, so endure. It won't last forever. That's what we see here. Satan, our enemy, the one who plagues our lives on this earth will, will be cast forever into the lake of fire. It's coming to an end. And here's what that should do in you. It should do something that causes you to be able to continue knowing this won't last forever. It's what occurs to me when I go to the dentist and I pay them to torture me and I sit down in that weird chair and I hold on to those plastic covered arms and I close my eyes and I open my mouth and then they, I have to open it wider, which is always uncomfortable with those metal instruments. And I close my eyes and I say to myself over and over and over again, it won't last forever. You can get through this. It won't last forever, man. 
And whatever they're doing right now won't last forever. That noise of that drill, which is the worst sound in the history of mankind, won't last forever. It's what some of you do every Sunday when I'm preaching. You hang on to your pew and you think, it won't last forever, man. You reach over to your husband and your wife, it won't last forever. I promise, he can't go on like this forever, right? That's what's going on in the people of God when they hear this. It's a declaration, suffering and sickness and pain and temptation and all of the deceit and discouragement and despair and depression will one day come to an end because our enemy will be defeated forever and cast eternally away from the presence of God and his people. That's good news. That's reason to rejoice. And it also means that not only will the suffering end, but it also means that none of the evil of this world will go unpunished or overlooked. For for every person who wonders about the goodness of God because the existence of of evil, you need to know there is a day coming when you may get more than what you ever imagined you were asking for. God, in all of his glory and power and holiness, will show up and he will crush the forces of hell and cast them into the lake of fire and bring judgment on all evil that has ever taken place. And I've got to tell you, as I was reading this passage this week, I just marveled over how short the description is of what happens here. There in those last few verses in in 9 and 10, what you see is that the final war, the final war is about a sentence and a half long. See that there? That that Satan assembles the armies of the earth for the last battle and before you can say go or draw, fire comes down and consumes them and Satan is eternally condemned. It's not a fair fight. Jesus doesn't break a sweat. I'm sweating more up here than the armies of heaven on that day. It's like that and it's done because that's not the climax of the story of creation. We'll get there next week. Satan is destined to be destroyed. Jesus is destined to reign. Here's the last thing I want you to see. Jesus is destined to reign. Satan is destined to be destroyed. And you are destined to stand before God. Look look with me at verses 11 through 15. And I have been praying all morning long that the word of God here in these verses would wash over us with a sobriety that we can't manufacture, that we can't make up. Look at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Now get this picture. We saw Christ returning and his eyes were like flaming fire. He was the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And he's seated on this throne Look what happens in verse 11. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. All of creation tried to get away from him. There's this terror of this judge on the throne, but no place was found for them. Where will you run from God? That's what he's saying here. Look at verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, those who've already died before this. And they were judged, each one of them, 
according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The last time we saw that, Satan was cast there. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire, period. End of sentence. God, give me grace in this. The destiny of every man, woman, child that has ever lived is to one day stand before a holy and righteous God. A God who in his perfect holiness is so glorious that when he shows up in this universe unveiled, heaven and earth itself tries to run away from him. And there's no place to run. And there's no place to hide. And there on that day, before that throne, every man, woman, child, small and great, rich and poor, stand before Almighty God. And they give an account of their lives. And there are two books that are opened. One book is the deeds of all that have been done by those people. Now this shows the record of their life, every thought, word, and deed, how they lived and who they were, written, preserved forever. If you think there is such thing as a secret sin or, or something that you have hidden, on that day, all will be made known. All will be made known. The things that only you and God know will be made known on that day as he opens up that book, which is the book of the deeds of those who had lived. And then there's another book, and that book is called the book of life. In chapter 13, verse eight, it actually says the book of life of the lamb who was slain. It's a book that belongs to Jesus, who is the lamb who was slain. It's referring to his death on the cross as a payment for sin. And what that book is, is a record of all who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ while they were on this earth. Is a record of those who have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ and the merit for us to enter into eternal bliss and pleasure at the presence of God in heaven. The merit for that is the work of Jesus Christ, not our own works. And if your name is not found written in that book of life, the book of those who during their lifetime acknowledge the work of Jesus and bowed before him as Lord and repented of their sin and called on his name, you will share in the destiny of the enemy of God. That's what we just read. At the last battle, Satan is bound and cast eternally into the lake of fire. The judgment of God comes to all who have lived and for all who were not found written in the book of life, they will be cast eternally into the lake of fire. And this is the last record the Bible gives us of what occurs in the life of someone who is not trusting in Jesus Christ as their savior. Eternally condemned from the presence of God. And I cannot I cannot convince you or cause your heart to comprehend for a moment the destiny of those who die without knowing Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I was writing this sermon. 
uh, this week. And I got off campus and I just sat in our community so that I'd be surrounded by people. And there were people coming and going all around me. And I overheard a lady going by as she was talking on her cell phone while I was writing this. And she was saying this, my AC is out on my car. I had to ride all the way here without air conditioning. It was hot as hell. And I thought to myself, this phrase that we use in our culture, right? This familiarity that we have as a culture that we use as just a a description of riding in our cars in Florida without the AC, we have no comprehension of what will occur when we are forever cast eternally from the presence of God. And the only way for us to be spared is through faith and dependence on Jesus. He died for the deeds that are written in that book. Your sin and my sin, the Bible says, is placed on Jesus at the cross so that all who trust in Jesus will have their sin paid for in Christ. God does not let sin go unpunished. Either it will be paid for in the death of Jesus as you trust in him and are united to his work or it will be paid in your life eternally as the second death consumes you forever, forever. And And I am asking that you would not leave this room today unless you know you are ready to stand before God. It is your destiny. You are destined to stand before a holy God. And try as you may, you will not be able to run away. There will be no place to hide. There will be nothing secret that will remain hidden. Are you ready to stand before God? I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and enter to a moment of, of contemplation. By God's grace, I would never seek to manipulate you ever, ever. And I would not seek to get you to make an emotional decision or that my words would somehow convince you or persuade you. But there are those in this room who know, I believe you know you are not ready to stand before God. You are not trusting in Jesus Christ. You do not know, you do not know that you are right with God through the work of Jesus. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit, that God's Spirit would be stirring your heart right now to call on Christ to save you. to to repent of your sin and to realize there is only one way to be saved and that is through Jesus Christ. There is one name given under heaven whereby we must be saved and that name is Jesus and Jesus alone. Would you even now call on Christ? Jesus, save me. Oh, that we would know the terror of standing before God before it's too late. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, would you consider that this is the fate of everyone you know? Everyone you know will stand before God. Will you pray right now for those in your life who are far from God, that they would be saved, they would call on Jesus to save them?
I'm going to pray and then I'm going to give us a time to respond to the teaching of God's word. And some of you may want to come and pray with a pastor or a counselor about your relationship with Jesus. Some of you may want to come and pray for those that you know who are not born again. And if they were to die and they will stand before God, they would be cast eternally from God's presence. And I want to, I want to encourage you to come and pray for their souls to be saved. I want to give us a time to respond to the teaching of God's word. Father, would you do a work in us that I cannot do, that no man can manufacture? Would you cause us to see clearly that while Christ is destined to reign and Satan is destined to be destroyed, we are all destined to stand before you. Lord, I pray that our lives would give evidence that we're trusting in Jesus. I pray that our hearts would be confident in Christ today. And if our hearts are not confident in Christ that we're trusting in him, I pray that we would not leave until they are. God, do this work, I pray in Jesus' name.